This morning, we are back in our series about the church as a community of grace. And probably most of you have caught on to this uh, by now, but like throughout this transitional period, as we're kind of searching for a new pastor, we're going to have different guest speakers coming in on a regular basis. And most of the time, those guest speakers are going to be coming and sharing about something that God has been laying on their heart. And then when I am preaching in those in-between weeks, we're going to keep coming back to the series that we're in. And right now we're on this series uh, about grace. And it's been a few weeks now, okay, so we'll start out with a little bit of a refresher. So in the first week of our series, we focused on experiencing God's grace. And we talked about the reality that grace is central to the gospel, If you try to remove grace from the Christian faith, the whole thing falls apart, right? It's really, it's the foundation. And the Greek word that gets translated into grace really just means gift. It's not a fancy theological word at all. It just means gift. So when the New Testament talks about God's grace, it's talking about the gifts that God pours into our lives that we could never uh, pay him back for, and that we can't earn. And of course, the first gift that comes to our mind when we think about God's grace is usually the gift of salvation. Right? It's, uh, It's the reality that we have been saved through Jesus' death and resurrection, that we've been set free from sin, and we've been given the gift of real life, eternal life in God's kingdom. But when scripture talks about salvation, it it doesn't just talk about it as something that we experience when we die, right? We've talked about this. We've talked about this quite a bit, right? The kingdom of God broke into our world in Christ, and he calls us to be a part of it now, to be people who live in light of his kingdom and who reflect his love and his truth into the world. And so we're not actually just saved by grace. We're saved by grace, but it's bigger than that, right? We're also called to be people who live by grace. Dallas Willard says, uh, grace is God acting in your life to accomplish what you can't accomplish on your own. It's something that we depend on each and every day. And so in, in week two of our series, we talked about seeing other people through the eyes of Christ, and how really that's the starting point when it comes to extending God's grace to others. And then we talked about forgiveness and how as difficult as it can be, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be people who live in the freedom that comes in knowing that we've been forgiven and then who extend that forgiveness to other people, even in those situations where it can sometimes seem like so impossible. And this morning, we're going to kind of zoom in on another specific area of grace. This morning, we're going to look at what grace means in those situations where we feel like we just don't have enough, or where we feel like we just aren't enough. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a situation where there was a need in front of you and you simply didn't have the resources available to meet it. In our culture, we're actually primed to focus on the things that we're lacking. All day, 
every day, as we're just like going about our lives very innocently, we are bombarded with advertisements that are designed to psychologically manipulate us into fixating on things that we don't have, right? So that we will then go to Walmart and buy them. Like, that's how it works, right? Walter Brueggemann says this about our culture. He says, we have a love affair with more, and we will never have enough. Consumerism is not simply a marketing strategy. It has become a demonic spiritual force among us. And the theological question facing us is whether the gospel has the power to help us withstand it. Oof. I don't think you could say it much stronger, but he's not wrong, right? He's on to something. And on top of that, we spend all kinds of time scrolling through social media, comparing our lives to other people's highlight reels, and wondering why we can't seem to get ourselves uh, together like everyone else. So when it comes to feeling like we're getting stuck in those feelings of inadequacy, we have a lot stacked against us in our culture. But the truth is, it isn't always just our perception. We all face situations where we really just don't have enough. And over the last two years, we've experienced that in a new way, didn't we? Started with the toilet paper, but it didn't end there, did it? We faced sanitizer shortages and mask shortages and car shortages, furniture shortages, right? Staff shortages, hospital bed shortages. The news headlines have been feeding us a steady stream of updates on all the things that we are not going to be able to get our hands on when we need them. But for most of us, the shortages that have hit us harder during the pandemic were the ones that we felt on a deeper level. Between all of the bad news and the stress and the conflict and the division, we've all had moments where we were running short on energy or hope or compassion or even faith. We've all felt that sense of not enoughness in a new way in this season. And it can be really disorienting as followers of Jesus when we navigate these seasons where we just don't feel like we have it in us to be the kinds of people that we want to be or to do the things that we know we're called to do. This morning, we're going to look at a passage where the disciples find themselves in one of those situations, where there's a need before them, but they don't have the resources to meet it. If you have your Bible, uh, you can open it up with me to John 6. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15. So this is a well-known passage. It's actually the only miracle story that you can find in all four ver uh, versions of the gospel. So you can find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you grew up in the church, you probably had like the flannel graph version of this parable. If you were a little older, maybe it was like the Veggie Tales version of this story when you were young. So it's a familiar story, but as familiar as the story might be to you, I want to encourage you this morning to try to hear it with new ears, to kind of like listen for what God might wanting to be say saying to you today. All right, so let's have a look. Uh, John 6, we will start at verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, 
also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples all around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. So, Jesus has been traveling around, teaching and performing miracles, and he has attracted quite a following. Everywhere he goes, huge crowds of people swarm to him because they want to see him do the impossible. And so Jesus climbs up a hill to kind of get some time alone with his disciples. But, sure enough, before they know it, there's a huge crowd that shows up looking for Jesus. And Jesus looks out at the crowd, and I love this. This is awesome, okay? There's like the huge crowd of people in front of him, and this is what he says. He says, man, these people look hungry. No one said anything about hungry. (laughs) Jesus looked at this crowd, he goes, these people look hungry. And then he says, hey, Philip, you're from around here. Where can we get food to feed all of these people? Where can we pick up some bread? Now think about how Philip must have felt in that moment. Like, can you believe it? Can you believe that Jesus was asking him this? This was his rabbi, right? He wouldn't have wanted to disappoint Jesus. And we don't know how long this whole little scenario took to play out, right? When we're reading through the story, it gets resolved really quickly. But I doubt that it felt like it was resolved really quickly in real life, especially if you're Philip, right? Or the disciples who kind of start scrambling in this moment. Jesus makes Philip wrestle with this feeling of insufficiency. And Philip does what I would have done, probably what some of you would have done. Philip starts to do the math, right? Let's look at verse seven. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Philip looks at the numbers. He does an inventory of what they've got available to them, right? He crunches the numbers and he looks at Jesus and he states the obvious. They don't have enough. There's a massive gap between the resources that they have available and the need that's in front of them in this hungry group of people. And then the camera pans to Andrew. Verse 8. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Now you can tell Andrew feels a little silly bringing this boy forward with his lunch, right? It's obviously like a drop in the bucket compared to what the need was in this situation. And we don't know whether like maybe this little boy had really insisted on coming forward and sharing his lunch. Uh, Maybe he had seen what was going on. We don't know. Maybe uh, Andrew's just one of those keeners who couldn't bear the possibility of having like nothing to offer. But either way, he brings forward this boy who has five little barley loaves. And barley at this time was known as the bread of the poor in this culture. 
and he's got two little fish. And Andrew says, I know it's not enough. I know it's not even worth mentioning, but this is what we've got. We have a little boy's lunch. And this is awesome. Look at verse 10. Jesus doesn't give any feedback. He doesn't kind of explain what he's going to do. Jesus says this, tell everyone to sit down. And so they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. Now, imagine this, okay? Like, picture this. This would be like me looking at you here today and being like, goodness, you guys look starving, and great news, I brought you all lunch. I have this miniature croissant, right? And it would be like me holding it up and thanking God for this feast that we're all going to share together in this miniature croissant. You'd be like, oh, are are there more? Are there like a bunch of people who are going to bring out like buckets of miniature croissants? And I'd be like, nope, just this one. Let's thank God for the feast that we're about to enjoy. Like, I wonder what the reactions of the people would have been in the crowd. Even Jesus' prayer would have seemed so out of place, right, in this moment, in this situation. So let's keep going. Verse 11, as they all ate, or, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told the disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing's wasted. So they picked up the, the pieces and filled, filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. So everyone ate until they were satisfied And not only that, there's leftovers, right? So it's just pointing to the abundant provision of God in this moment. And then verse 14. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. I love how he just slips away. So the people are convinced now that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And they want to make him their king. But the kind of king that they want Jesus to be is totally different than the kind of king that Jesus came to be. They want Jesus to be a Messiah who's going to violently overthrow Rome and bring them into a position of political power. Jesus is preparing to give up his life on the cross. And so he slips away to get some time alone. Now on the surface, this is a miracle about meeting a physical need. Jesus saw a group of hungry people and he satisfied their hunger with bread and with fish. But through this miracle, Jesus was actually pointing something, uh, pointing people to something much bigger. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' miracles are spoken about as signs. They point to deeper realities about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And later on in this same chapter, Jesus provides a little bit of a deeper meaning of this miracle and what he was trying to show people. What happens is the crowds are out looking for Jesus, and finally, they track him down. And Jesus essentially says to them, you're all here 
because I gave you bread and you love carbohydrates. Right? Who doesn't love bread? He says, I, I gave you food. I filled your bellies, but you don't understand the deeper meaning of this miracle. And then in verse 27, he says, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. The crowds were more interested in the bread that Jesus was able to provide them with than they were in Jesus himself. But these people were hungry for more than just food, just like us. And they were running around trying to satisfy themselves with things that don't last, just like we do. I mean, think about all of the things that we chase after trying to find happiness and purpose and value and security, the things that never really end up satisfying us. Jesus says, don't waste your energy chasing after things that don't last. Spend your energy seeking the real, eternal life that I want to bring you. Because I'm the only one who can really satisfy your hunger. And then the people say, okay, well, if you really want us to believe in you, do another miracle. That's what they say. And then they start talking about uh, their history, this moment of time that the Israelites experienced with Moses, where Moses uh, provided the Israelites with manna in the wilderness for 40 years as they wandered after being set free from slavery in Egypt. And you can find that in Exodus 16. So manna was this food that God miraculously provided to the, elder, uh, to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness, right? So some of you probably know this story. Every day, they would go outside and they would collect the food that they needed just for that day. And so it was this daily reminder to God's people that they could trust in God to provide for them, right? And not only that, in fact, God's provision was their only hope. They really didn't have much of a choice. They were completely dependent on the God who had rescued them and called them their people to provide, to provide for them. And then Jesus responds to them by saying this in verse 32. I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread from, of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So as the Jewish people are getting ready to celebrate Passover, this festival that anchored them in their identity as God's people, people who he had set free from slavery and provided for in the wilderness, Jesus was teaching them that he's the one that this had all actually been pointing towards. He was about to rescue not just the Israelites, but all people from slavery to sin and death. And he's the bread that provides real fulfillment, real sustenance to those who are willing to receive it. When Jesus saw that crowd of people coming towards him. 
He saw people who were hungry for more than bread. And then he used this miracle to point them towards this deeper fulfillment that could only be found in him. So now let's go back to how this whole miracle started. It started with a question. How are you going to feed these hungry people? How are you going to feed these people? Jesus knew that again and again, the disciples would find themselves in these situations where they didn't have enough, where they wanted to represent Christ well, where they wanted to continue his work in the world, but they didn't feel like they had the energy or the expertise or the resources. They'd have moments where they were tired. They'd have moments where they were scared, where they didn't know what to do, where they felt inadequate. And I think that this miracle was more for the disciples than it was for anybody else. Because Jesus wanted to show them what to do in those moments. He wanted them to experience that feeling of inadequacy so that he could guide them through it. And so that again and again, they could come back to this moment when they needed to be reminded how to navigate it. There are all kinds of ways that we naturally try to cope with those moments of insufficiency. When there's not enough to go around, so often we become consumed with what we're lacking, right? It can become really difficult to think about anything or anyone else. We hoard, we cling tightly to what we have because we're so scared that we might lose it. We start to see other people as our rivals, as our competition, rather than our friends or as just fellow human beings. When we feel like we don't measure up, often we either tend to shrink back in shame or puff up our chests and try to overcompensate for what we know we're lacking. But in our story, the little boy is the one who ends up being the hero. He's the one who really gets it. And what does he do in this moment of insufficiency? He takes what he has, he brings it to Jesus, and he lets Jesus do what only Jesus can do. And what does God call us to do when we feel like we don't have enough? He calls us to take what we have, to bring it to Jesus, and to let Jesus do what only Jesus can do. So let's take a deeper look at each of those. First, we take what we have. So often, when we feel like we don't have enough, our attention becomes completely consumed with what we're lacking. That's all we can think about. That's all we can pay attention to. But the invitation of this passage is to shift our focus to what we do have. There's a story in Mark 12 where Jesus is watching people make their donations to the temple. And a bunch of rich people come forward and they write these great big checks. And then a widow comes forward, someone who's living in poverty, and she drops two small coins into the box. And Jesus calls his disciples over 
And he says to them, I want you guys to understand that this woman just gave more than anybody else here because she gave everything that she had. God never shames us for what we don't have to give. He just calls us to bring what we do have. A while ago when I was working at a shelter uh, in Hamilton, there was a woman staying there who was just hilarious and awesome. And she wanted to do something for the other residents, for the other women who were staying in the shelter. She knew what they were going through. She knew it was tough. And she just wanted to spread some hope and some joy. And she didn't have much. But you know what she had? She had a ball of yarn, and she had some knitting needles. And so she made everyone mints. And I've never seen so many faces light up at just being given a pair of handmade mittens. This past week, I was driving through uh, at Starbucks, and the person at the window was so genuinely warm and friendly that as I, I drove away, I was like, Wow, in those two moments, that person changed the tone of my entire day. And what did she have? She just had moment after moment, opportunity after opportunity to have these little interactions with people that could leave them in a place where they left feeling better than they did when they came. Doesn't need to take a lot to make a big difference. So we take what we have. The second thing we do is we bring it to Jesus. And now what I want you to notice is that that word bring is a verb. Okay, it's an action word. This requires us to actually step out and do something. Often when we're still scared. Often when we're still not sure how it's going to turn out. Sometimes even when our faith still feels weak. Right? This is what we saw in Andrew in this moment when he brought forward the lunch and said, I don't know, I don't know if it's enough, but here it is. The truth is that it's in those moments that our faith muscle grows. Our faith doesn't grow by thinking really hard and by trying to convince ourselves that we can trust God. Our faith grows as we follow the Spirit's nudges and we take risks that he's calling us to take. A couple of uh, years ago, I was trying to teach my nephew, Ethan, to ride a bike. And for the longest time, I could not get this kid to take off his training wheels. Every day, I would say, buddy, I think you're ready. Let's give it a try. And he would be like, nope, no way. I'm too scared. I don't want to. But then one day, we saw another little boy riding around the block. And he looked at me and he said, that boy is four years old. And soon, I'm going to be turning five. And it was game on. (laughs) He said, it's time to take off the training wheels. And so I took off the training wheels, and Ethan got up onto his bike, and I was holding on under his seat, you know, as you do, and he started to pedal, and then I let go. And I kid you not, like, the ki- he just kept going. <laughs> he, just, he, just, he, he, could, he, he could ride the bike. He just kept going. And then a couple seconds later, he looked at me and he said, you can, you can let go now. And I was like, I already did. He's like, no, let go. I was like, I already let go. And he's like, am I riding a bike? I'm like, you're riding a bike. You're doing it. Suddenly, it was like this 
whole new world of opportunity was opened up to him because he was finally ready to take the risk. All real change starts with a risk, and it's when we're willing to step out and bring what we have to Jesus that God's able to move in us and through us in ways that we could never imagine on our own. So we take what we have, we bring it to Jesus, and then the third step, the third thing we do, it's very easy. We let Jesus do what only Jesus can do. Wasn't up to the little boy in the crowd to come up with some sort of mathematical formula to make sure that there was enough bread to go around. He just brought what he had to Jesus, and Jesus did what only Jesus could do. And God does this kind of thing all throughout Scripture. He uses ordinary people who just bring what they have, and he uses it to do the impossible. Like with Moses. You guys remember this? God told Moses that he was going to confront Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of slavery, and Moses wasn't so sure. You know, he, kept, he was asking God, how is this going to work? How is this, this going to play out? And God says to him, well, what do you have in your hand? And he said, a stick. And God was like, good, we'll use the stick. We'll use what you have. When Jesus was at a wedding and they ran out of wine, what did he do? He looked around to see what they had. What did they have? They had water. And Jesus was like, great, we'll use the water. And he turned it into wine. Jesus used Peter, the disciple who denied even knowing him three times to be a key leader in the early church. He used Paul, who once persecuted Christians, killed Christians, to take the gospel to the Gentiles because these people were willing to bring what they had to Jesus with all of their messy backgrounds and their failures and their shame and to just let Jesus use them. God loves to do the impossible through ordinary people with their ordinary resources and their ordinary day-to-day lives. Maybe some of you are here this morning, and after two years of living through a pandemic, you feel like you don't have a lot to, mu- to give. My guess is that there's probably a lot of you who are feeling that way in, in this season. The beautiful thing about this passage is that it's even more relevant when we realize how little we have to offer. God isn't worried about whether or not you're meeting quotas. He's not shaking his head because you don't have the energy and the strength today that you might have had two years ago. The things that God has for you to do in this season might be different than the things that he's called you to do in other seasons, and that's okay. Maybe he's just calling you to be someone who gets it to be someone who can listen to people as they go through different struggles, who can understand. Maybe he's calling you uh, to learn more about what it looks like to experience his hope and his presence, even when things aren't yet as they should be, just by surrendering moment after moment to him. Wherever you're at today, the invitation of this passage is the same. It's to take what you have regardless of how inadequate or insufficient it might seem. To offer it to Jesus and to let Jesus do 
what only he can do. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 says, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. There's a passage to chew on. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. We can rest in God's grace knowing that his power works best in our weakness. In our world where it's so easy to focus on what we're lacking, God invites us to be people who experience the real fulfillment in Christ, who is the bread of life, and then who extend that hope to the hungry people all around us as we take what we have, bring it to Jesus, and let Jesus do what only he can do.